Isn't God's faithfulness so great? Thank you, lead worshipers, for that. Praise God. Uh, I just want to underscore the invitation to members this evening. I trust it will be a uh, edifying and fruitful time together as we are one body in uh, our members' meeting and celebrate what God is doing in our midst. So come out tonight at 5 o'clock. As we go to God's word, we've been making our practice to just spend a few moments together in prayer and specifically uh, petitioning God as a gathered congregation, coming as one people before God and saying, God, we need you, and admitting our neediness, our dependence on God. And so let me invite you now to just continue in a spirit of prayer, and let's, let's pray for the needs of our congregation uh, in prayer together. So bow your heads with me, if you would. Father God, we come to you in prayer, and we thank you for your great faithfulness to us. You have been so faithful, and so we can come boldly knowing that you will be faithful as you have been. And God, we now want to lift up requests and needs of our church body to you as a body. Father, I, I, I ask you right now that you would be with us as we go to your word and that you would give us a deeper understanding of the peace that we have with God. God, would you encourage this church today through Philippians and through the peace we have. And Father, we also thank you for the life of, of Sandra as she comes and is baptized in a few moments. Father, we as a church now pray that you would encourage Sandra in her faith. Father, would you build her up in Christ and sh would she be faithful to the end? Father, we pray that we would be a church that is faithful to walking with her. Father, we pray for our members' meeting later today. We, we ask that you would use it to encourage our members in their task, in the work of ministry. Father, I pray that you would use this meeting and the life of our church to give us a greater commitment to one another in true community. Father, we also pray for, for those who are walking away from the church or who have stopped considering it important to, to gather with other believers. Father, we ask that you would lead them to repentance. Would you lead them back to this church or to another healthy church? May they grow by committing themselves to other believers. Father, we pray that you would not just work in our church today, but we pray that you would grow your kingdom here in Palm Beach County. God, we pray for other local churches that are also founded on the word of God. We pray that you would bless their ministries and that you would give them growth. Father, we pray that they would grow as they proclaim the good name of Jesus Christ. And now we pray, Father, work in us today, as Pastor Keith has just prayed. Work in us through your word and create life in your people as we sit under the teaching of scripture. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, peace is elusive. You don't have to look far in today's world to have reasons for anxiety. 
causes for worry or fear or lack of peace in your life, I'm guessing are just not very hard to find. Just open up your favorite news app on your telephone or check your 401k or maybe step on a scale or read forecasts of our economy. Uh, reasons for worry are just everywhere. Maybe go to your, your Facebook feed and, and reflect on friends who were once actually your friends but have now grown distant. Or even more scary, look at your children or your grandchildren and think about the world that they're growing up into and the risks that lay ahead of them. We have no shortage of places that we can have anxiety and reason for distress. And that the problems that threaten our peace as Christians are not just plentiful, they're real. They're actual things that we face. We live in a broken world. We don't face just potential hardship, we face actual hardship in this world. Trials don't get smaller by just pretending that they're not there. I wonder what worries or sources of anxiety you bring with you as you come in today. Maybe you are just laden with them. Or, or maybe they're just on a low simmer on the back, the back plate of your mind. Maybe you're not thinking about them often, but when you realize it, there's this constant worry, this, the, the buzz in the airways of your life that, that bring anxiety to aspects of the way that you think about your future. If you're here today and you're a visitor, let me just suggest that the Bible is far more honest about the problems in this world than we often are. The Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that we actually have things to worry about. The Bible, however, also introduces the reality of God's sovereign control into the place of our worries. And this is what we're going to see today. So if you brought your Bibles, we'll be in Philippians, as Pastor Keith said. I'm not in Philippians, so let me flip over there. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. And this is a book that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church, a church like ours, with real people and real struggles that they were facing. And today in this passage, we're considering the, the peace that we have for those of us who are found in Christ Jesus. I invite you to consider three aspects in this passage of our peace. We're going to look at the bond of peace the disciplines of peace, and then the promise of peace. And I pray that as we do, that your response to the troubles that you face and the worries that you certainly will face in this life, that, those, that your response becomes just radically more God-centered today. Follow along with me as I read in Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. Paul writes this. He says, I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Notice how our first paragraph teaches us about this bond of peace. So number one, the bond of peace. I'm, I'm stealing this phrase here, the bond of peace, because in Ephesians, a similar letter of Paul, where he also calls the church to a unity, he uses this phrase. And that's what's happening here in verses two and three. There's a horizontal unity, a, a horizontal peace that Paul is calling the church to have together. Apparently, this church that was gathered in Philippi had two women, Syntyche and Yodia, who were not in agreement. They were a church like our church. And a couple of their members in their church were not unified. And so Paul calls them out by name, which, by the way, is different for this letter. Do you remember this? We've kind of walked through the letter now. And, and we've seen that back in chapter 1 that there's these, these false preachers of the gospel. And Paul didn't feel the need to identify them. And then we got to chapter 3 and we read about these dogs and these evildoers. But again, Paul didn't tell us their names and who they were. And then earlier in 3 verse 18, we read about these enemies of Christ. And again, Paul spoke very generally there. But here, when the unity of the body is at stake, he calls out Syntyche and Yodia by name. And he pleads for them to work together, to agree, to literally have the same mind, the mind that is theirs in Christ Jesus. This need for, for unity is marked by the fact that they had run together. They had been fellow workers together with Paul. They had labored together and that they would one day be together. The text says that their names are together written in the book of life. Their future together is sure in heaven. And so let's think about our church. I wonder if you've ever had a disagreement with someone else in this church. Don't worry, I'm not about to call anyone by name. But can you think of a time that you haven't agreed with someone in this body? Now let me just ask you, doesn't disagreement, like whatever you might have experienced, slow down the labor of the gospel, the good work of focusing on moving the gospel forward and serving in a church? Doesn't your labor get distracted when there is a lack of peace in the body? 
these ladies had labored side by side. And it seems that Paul might be worried that their labor would now be distracted. And so Paul says they need to agree. But then notice verse 3. This is where it gets interesting. Because there's this disunity in the church. And Paul says that the church needs to come help them. You see in verse 3 he mentions this true companion at Philippi. Do you see that there in the text? We don't, we don't know who this true companion is. It's in the singular. It seems like he's referring to one person that he needs their help. But apparently they knew who this was. And Paul says this person com- should come over and step in to help these two women agree. These people disagreeing. Paul sends a third in. Come help work out towards peace. This would be like if Matt Piercefield and I are having a disagreement. And Paul says, hey, Tony Boutwell, come over and talk to Matt and Jeff and help them work out their disagreement. Work together, fight together as a church for unity in the body. Their holiness is a group project. Friends, this is why I would argue you need to be a member of a local church. And you need to be a committed member. Because you need a place where you can obey the command of verse 3 where you can help others agree in the Lord, like this true companion was called to help others in the Lord. You need to help others in their walk. This is the bond of peace. Uh, Just let me pause here, actually. Before moving on, this is just too good to skip. Uh, Let me just speak to the women in the room. Okay, so if you're men here today, don't pull out your phones and just work on something else. You can still pay attention, too. But, but let me speak to the women that are here, because if you notice, this passage is especially addressed to these two women in the church. And they're not sidelined. They're worthy of attention. Their names, we notice, are written in the book of life, so they matter. And they're laboring together with Paul, which, by the way, is just beautiful. They're laboring, fellow workers, side by side with Paul. The Bible does teach different roles for men and women. But here we see that these roles complement each other for the labor of the gospel. But what I want you to notice, ladies, is this, that these women have the opportunity to either bless the church by their harmony or slow the church by their disunity. Let me say that again. You women in the church have the opportunity to either bless this church by your harmony with one another or to slow this church by your disunity. When you as women live in harmony, so when you uh, avoid drama and avoid gossip and busybody or disunity, when you instead agree in the Lord, this brings a harmony that blesses our church. All right, that's enough there. Let's keep moving. We've talked about the bond of peace. Now, think with me about the disciplines of peace. The passage next spends the bulk of our time today talking about the disciplines of our peace. Now, why am I saying disciplines? You can think practices or habits of peace. I, I honestly don't think I would have said this until I studied the text. But what I'm, what I'm noticing is across the remaining six verses— Paul turns his attention from peace among others to an inward sense of peace. The next paragraph centers on anxiety and its antidote. The following paragraph after that thinks about how we should think 
if the God of peace is going to be with us. And these paragraphs are filled with, with commands, with imperatives of what you should do. Here's what you should do. And they drive to a conclusion. Jump down with me to verse 9. It's the summary. It's why I'm understanding the passage this way. There's a list of these commands, these imperatives together. And we get to verse 9 and we read, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. So what I've been teaching you, the things that I've been teaching you, I think particularly the last six commands that I just gave you, practice these things. So make a habit of, make a discipline of doing these things. Put them to work. And he says, the God of peace will be with you. It seems that there's a connection between this list of commands and the ultimate result, which is our peace. We practice these disciplines Paul's been teaching as we live with the God of peace. Okay, so, so what are they? What are the disciplines of peace? I have four of them, I think. So let's jump back up to verse 4. The first discipline of peace is to rejoice. Paul tells us, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. So here is the opposite of anxiety, joy. Here rejoice is an imperative, it's a command. We worship a God that commands you to rejoice. He commands that you be glad. Isn't that glorious? God seems to think that he has the right to tell us what we should do with our emotions. We should take joy. We should be happy. Dave Mathis says it this way, joy is not a garnish on the dutiful entree of the Christian life. No, joy is not the icing on our cake, but it is the essential ingredient of a complex batter. And this isn't the only time that Paul commands us to do this. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3, 13, finally, brothers, rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. Earlier in Philippians 3, uh, 2, verse 18, be glad and rejoice with me. Philippians 3, 1, rejoice in the Lord. Joy for the Christian is commanded constantly. We're told you should be happy. And it's not just in this book. It's across the whole Bible. But think about it in this book. How can Paul tell us to rejoice always? How could Paul even write that? Think about what we've been studying, church. In chapter 1, he's sitting in jail, imprisoned. And, and then he says that he was, in the second half of chapter 1, he's facing death. He's sitting on death row, potentially facing execution. And then in 1 verse 17, he says that others were afflicting him in his imprisonment and preaching Christ out of, out of selfish motives. How can he tell us that we should always rejoice? How can you always rejoice in the midst of the difficulties that you are facing? Well, Scripture says, rejoice in the Lord always. Joy is pervasive in the Christian life because by God's design, our joy is to be in him. We can rejoice always because our joy is not fundamentally about our circumstances. Our joy foundationally is in the Lord. 
So do you take joy in God? Do you, do you delight in learning more about God? Do you find pleasure in, in thinking on God and on meditating on his kindnesses to you? Or is God just an accessory to you finding other joys in your life? Being happy in God is one of the marks of a true Christian. I just have to pause here and acknowledge that I just know in this room some people come in today and feel like joy is a bit like a mirage off in the desert. You, you don't even want to walk towards it because as soon as you take a first step towards, you, towards it, it will just disappear. But let me just encourage you that the first step of faith the first step of obedience that this text says is that when you are tempted to fear or to anxiety or troubles in your life, you begin by taking joy in the Lord. And you do that by trusting him. But secondly, we see another discipline of peace, and that is reasonableness. Again, this is an opposite of being filled with anxiety. Verse 5 commands us, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I wonder if you can think about a time that you've let your mind just run away with anxious thoughts. Worry can be like a train that just kind of jumps off the track and just kind of starts going down the hill until it's just picking up speed at the bottom of the mountain. It just runs away. And, and don't pretend like you've never been here before. We, we all have. We've, you hear, I don't know, you, you hear the creak in the garage and you worry because you don't know who's out there in the middle of the night. And so you decide it's a serial killer. And before you know it, you've written your eulogy and you decide your children are going to be orphaned, right? Just kind of go down that road. I don't, I don't know, whatever it is in your life, you're laughing because you know you do it. Or, or maybe the train bounces off the tracks with a real genuine risk, something that could really actually happen. You, you feel a bump that you ha just haven't noticed before. And you haven't gotten to the oncologist yet. But it really could be life-threatening. Have you ever met someone that is just seemingly unflappable? They handle partial news about something and they aren't tossed to and fro. They aren't quick to play the what-if game in their life. Verse 5 says, let your reasonableness be so much a part of your life that it is just known to everyone. The depth of this reasonableness is found in resting in God so that even when tragedy does happen, even when you do lose your loved one or you do get the, result, test, the test results back that, that you didn't want, that you have a, a ballast in your life a reasonableness. And that's where Paul then goes next to the heart of it. This next discipline of peace is the command of verse 6. And it is a command. Listen to what he says. He says, do not be anxious about anything. To be anxious is to have an, an unhealthy worry about potential danger or misfortune. This is just letting the, the airwaves of the radio of your mind just play in almost an endless loop of uncontrolled concern. 
or as one author put it, it's putting your mind on the spin cycle like a, like a washer machine, just going over and over and over again about what might happen, what is the misfortune that might come your way. Ultimately, it's a lack of trust in the sovereignty of God. And so I wonder, what are you tempted to be anxious about? This verse will probably only be helpful for you if you get specific. The verse says, do not be anxious about anything. So, So what is your anything? What's the anything in your life that you might be tempted to worry about? This is a great conversation over lunch this afternoon with a friend. Just get specific, get nitty-gritty about what you're tempted to let just run away in your mind. Perhaps something related to money or to your health or men, maybe it's the, the fear of not being able to provide for your family or worrying that something will happen to your cho- children or, or maybe it's a, a future calamity or a coming hurricane or maybe it's the fear of just never getting married or the fear of being alone in the future, or the fear of getting a call that something has happened to a loved one, or maybe for some of you, it's the worry that someone might hurt you, or the worry that someone is just going to go and speak poorly about you behind your back. It's just out of your control. You won't be able to get your reputation back. They're going to steal your reputation. Or maybe you worry about looking good in front of others. Or maybe you worry that your spouse will cheat on you. Or perhaps you're afraid of death. In some measure, many of these are very legitimate trials that may happen. But God calls you to not be anxious about anything. No, wait. Actually, God commands you not to be anxious. It's easy to jump to verse 6 to this command, but skip out the glorious reality of verse 5. Did you see it there? Paul writes just before this, the Lord is at hand. Or your translation might have, the Lord is near. Some scholars think this is referring to the fact that that the return of Christ is imminent. It might come at any time. It could mean that. Others would take it more generally, that Christians have a a real experiential closeness to Christ. I I think that better fits the context. But importantly, all anxiety is failing to believe that God is near in your moment of distress. It's failing to realize that God is involved in those nitty-gritty details that you are finding stressful. We battle unbelief. We fail to remember the presence of a good and a sovereign God. David Pallison is so helpful. He writes it this way. He says, The problem of unbelief is always present in anxiety. Because what unbelief does is forget or erase who God is. So, it's me and my cancer. It's me and my fear of being betrayed. It's me and my strained teenager. There's no real God in there. There's no God who's 
on the scene. There's an erasure. It's like blanking out God's present presence. Anxiety is, is a lonely-producing agent. It, it says that we're dealing with his problems in this world alone. It's just me and this problem. Well, Scripture says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. How would your anxiety, how would your worries, how would your concerns or your stresses be reshaped if in that moment you believed that God is near to you? That he is at hand in your distress. I wonder if you can remember the story of 2 Kings 6. It's in the life of Elisha, and Elisha is God's servant. And there's this time when the king of Syria is chasing down Elisha, and he sends this army. He sends an entire army after Elisha. You think you have bad problems this week? I don't think you have the entire army of Syria coming to track you down. But that's what's happening to Elisha. And listen to what happens. We read that the, the king sent to Elisha the horses and chariots and a great army, and they came to Elisha by night, and they surrounded the entire city around Elisha. And when the servant of the man of God rose up early in the morning, he went out, and behold, there is just, there's horses and chariots, and they're all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Now just pause. That might be where many of you are right now. There is a, a giant army surrounding whatever problem you're walking through in your life right now. And you're saying, Alas, what should, what should I do? They had a real problem. In the world's eyes, they had good reason to fear. Verse 16, Elisha said to his servant, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those that are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain behind the Syrian army was filled when it was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I wonder who in this room needs to, today needs their eyes opened like this servant to see that the Lord is near. Next time your heart slips into worry, introduce this into the picture. If you are in Christ Jesus, the Lord is near. He's not far off. He's not distant. He's not removed. He's not uncaring. You might feel like Naomi, bitterly forsaken, but God is not out of the picture. He is in the picture, and he is up to something. I just have to pause here and say that if there's anyone in this room that is not sure that they are a Christian. You need to hear what I'm saying to Christians about this promise of the Lord being near, and you need to pay attention. Because for those who have not repented of their sin and not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the nearness of God is actually a frightful thing. It's a horrible thing. See, God has created us to be accountable to him. 
and we as humans have sinned against God. We've done wrong, and we deserve to be punished. And because of this, the Bible says that we do not have peace with God, that we are enemies with God. We actually are against him in our sin. No amount of good works that you do, no, off, no amount of coming to church and sitting in this room, no amount of good thoughts that you think can reconcile you before God. The good news, though, is that Jesus Christ came as God. He lived and he died on the cross, bearing the punishment of our sin, and he rose again, purchasing us peace with God. He took the sin that we deserved. But we must respond. We must repent and believe and look to Jesus Christ in faith. You must respond. God being near is only good for us if we are forgiven and found new in Jesus Christ. And if you are not, then the guilt of your sin and the nearness of God, the coming return of Jesus Christ, for you is, is just a horrible thing. I plead with you, come to Christ today. Talk to someone today about how to trust in Christ by faith. Well, let's notice the next discipline of peace in this passage. Notice where Paul next goes. He says to pray. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul uses three terms here. Prayer, which is an interceding on behalf of others. Supplication, which would be like an entreaty, like an urgent pleading to God. And requests, which would be mentioning specific needs, requests to God, being specific in your prayer. And the point of all of these is that we come to God for all of his help in our burdens. We give the matter over to God, trusting him that he can handle it. So in, in one sense, this is an action. We're actively handing over the burdens to God in prayer. We're not just sitting on our worries. We're not just sitting and replaying them time and time again. No, we're carrying them somewhere, and we're carrying them to Jesus Christ. But then in another sense, it's passive because we're just giving them up to God. It's like we're just letting him take care of them. I, I'm not saying we don't act in the Christian life, but there is a restfulness in laying our burdens at the feet of Christ. Timothy Keller says it this way. He says, through our petitions, we receive peace and rest. Just as physical sleep is giving up control, so petition is giving up control and resting and trusting in God to care for our needs. It's putting God back into the picture. In the moment of anxiety, prayer displays that we believe that God is capable of handling our situation. And then a final discipline of peace. Look down at verse 8. We see there the command to think rightly. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So Paul lists these, these eight virtues, which he tells us to think on, to dwell on. The, liter the word literally says, consider them. 
stop and reckon them. So imagine your thought, thought life, the way that you think, is a bit like a car going on a journey. It's going through each day with its twists and turns, which, with its hills and valleys. Well, where do you stop and park your mind? Where do you, where do you pull over and let your mind just sit for a few minutes? If you park your mind in the gutter, don't be surprised when the peace of God is elusive. I wonder if some of you here today are letting the algorithms of Silicon Valley, of Facebook, and of Instagram decide where you will set your mind. I wonder if some of us are retreating to Netflix or whatever your favorite streaming pl platform is and not giving any thought to the things that we're putting in our minds and what we will choose to dwell on, where we will park our minds. How would your entertainment be changed this week if you obeyed this verse? How would your conversations be changed? Scripture says you are to park your mind on that which is true, so not false. On that which is honorable, not shameful. Just, so fair and equitable. Pure, so that which is not stained by sin. Lovely, things that are admirable. Commendable, things that you can commend to others. Or anything of excellence, full of integrity, or anything worthy of praise, so deserving attention. Are you putting your mind on these things? I recently enjoyed coffee with one of our members here, and we were drinking coffee, and he was talking about his, his work, and which is so encouraged by talking about this very idea together played out. And he was explaining to me that in his workplace, he's pressured to watch the latest grisly documentary on Netflix by some of his coworkers. And his response was just great. He said, why would I, as a Christian, want to put that stuff into my mind? Friends, this is how Christians think. It's not, what can I get away with? It's, why would I want to drive by and park my mind in the gutter when there are beautiful vistas for me to pull over and just enjoy with my mind. Do you want to enjoy the peace of God? Let these virtues characterize what you spend time thinking about. Maybe just take a different one each morning this week and pray over it as you start your day. Well, we should conclude. We've, we've started by considering the bond of peace, and then now I've been explaining these five different disciplines of peace. Join with me now just, just briefly in, actually in, in worship as we consider the promise of peace. Because where this passage ends is glorious. We read in verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is glorious. Christians are, are promised peace. This is a peace that is not from us. It's the peace of God. It's from outside of us. It's an alien peace that he gives to us. And this peace that God gives can't be understood it can't be explained by the circumstances you're in. 
you look for a piece that, that fits with good worldly circumstances, I'm guessing it's not a, a deep piece. No, this piece is a piece that surpasses understanding, that the outside world looks at your life and looks at the circumstances you are walking through this week and this month and this year and says, how in the world do they have this piece? It doesn't match what our eyes see. And it's, it's here already, and yet it's coming in the future. It's something that right now that we have experientially with Christ, we have a new and profound peace as we walk in him. And yet it is a future coming peace, a, a shalom in eternity, in peace with God. This is the promise that we have as Christians. For those who are in Christ, we have this peace. Christian, you can worship God because this peace will guard your heart and your mind. This word for guard here is, is the word for a garrison. It's the picture of a, of a whole troop standing guard around a city. You can think back to what we just talked about in Kings. And they're standing guard protecting what's on the inside. And God's word says that the peace of God, which the Christian receives in Christ, is standing guard over your heart and your mind. This is the promise of peace. But how does it come to us? How? How does it work? How will it guard us? How is it that God chooses to send this peace to you? Notice where the end of the passage, the second paragraph lands at the end of verse 9. We have the peace of God because the God of peace will be with you. Christians are not given peace as if it's some magic token that is dispensed from God and which we hold on to. Christians are given peace through the presence of God himself. The God of peace has promised to be with us. Peace is ours in Christ Jesus. It's not merely a feeling or an external gift. It's not a memento from God. No, it is a person. It is God himself. God has promised to be with us. Can you praise God today for this in your life? Let me conclude by just briefly quoting from a, an old hymn. It's, it's actually anonymous. We don't know the author who wrote it, which makes it glorious uh, because it's a reflection. The first verse, which I won't read, is, is a reflection from the church to the church about how firm a foundation we saints of the Lord stand on. And then the following verses aren't like normal hymns. Normal hymns we sing as a people to God. We're singing to God. This is written, how firm a foundation, in the voice from the perspective of God speaking to his people. God reminding his people the peace that he promises in Jesus Christ. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be near thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not, 
desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you for the peace that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, I just pray over this dear flock. I pray for those who are finding this peace elusive and who are weighed by the worries, the true and real worries of this world. God, would your word work supernaturally right now to remind us of what we have in Christ Jesus. God, remind us of the peace that is already ours and that is coming in the future, in eternity future with Christ. Let us rest in that today. We pray this in the name of Jesus.